Bible prophecy is often misunderstood and misapplied, which leaves many people confused or fearful. But when the Bible is studied in its proper context, prophecy becomes clear and understandable. There is no one we can trust more than Jesus, and His words will speak specifically to us as we study them in their simplicity. Welcome to Jesus on Prophecy. When you look over the world tonight, men and women everywhere are searching for certainty. They're looking for assurance. And there's an explosion of interest in psychic phenomenon today. And people are looking for answers outside themselves. And this search has led them through a variety of pathways to tap into the supernatural, to tap into the esoteric understanding of things outside our, the realm of our physical world. But I'd like to take a moment to remind us of our theme that we always want to be cognizant of as we study if it's in the Bible, I believe it. If it disagrees with the Bible, it's not for me. And so this is a theme that we've chosen during this series of meetings. And I hope that that will always be your motto as you are living your life and hoping to live according to the Word of God in every aspect of your life. Because, friends, when we learn to rely upon the Bible, when we learn to rely upon God's Word we will be ready for the last days. And we're living in the last days. We do not want to be deceived. And when people put forward, put forward ideas that contradict the Bible, we know, we can know whether they are false. But if there are false prophets, there must also be true prophets. Wouldn't that make sense? And how do we know the true from the false? Like we know anything else, it is what, based on what the Bible says about it. So we see that the reason why this is so important is, is because people want answers. They want answers outside of themselves. Their lives have become confused. And they're looking for some way to touch the, the divine. And they're looking for some way to experience the supernatural. So our question for tonight, our first question, will there be prophets in the last days? Now, let's take a look at Matthew chapter 24, verse 24. I don't have the page numbers, but uh, I think we know where Matthew is, the first gospel of the New Testament. Matthew 24, 24, it's page 961. Matthew 24, 24, Jesus warns us against the counterfeit. And here are some on, ominous words that Jesus warns us about many counterfeits that will come as we're living in the last days. So Matthew chapter 24 verse 24, page 961, and table number one, if we could have someone read that for us, please. For false Christs and false 
prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive. Mm -hmm. So we see that the Bible says that there will be what? False Christs and false prophets that will show signs and wonders. They will claim that they can put you in touch with the divine. People such as astrologers, magicians, witches, wizards, Spirit mediums, palm readers, tarot cards, Ouija boards, the occult. All these things are not innocent fun. These are false prophets specifically condemned by the Bible. I think we should take heed to that, especially since Halloween is right around the corner. You know, we, we glorify these sort of things and have our kids become fascinated with these things, kids that want to be like, become like Harry Potter and this sort of nonsense, which is actually very dangerous, actually. Uh, it's not just good old fun that's just no harm behind it. It's actually opening them up to be peculiar, to be, to be curious about spiritual things, things of the occult nature. And these people are blatant false prophets. And the Bible actually condemns such people that we should stay away from them, we should not dabble with them, and that's not what Christians should be involved with. They will claim that they have supernatural powers, but the Bible says that they are false. They're false Christs, false prophets. But also, furthermore, in Matthew 7, verse 15, it says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. What does a sheep represent in the Bible? Well, yeah, Jesus, but who's, Jesus is the great shepherd, right? And so the sheep are his, those who follow him. And so there are some people that claim to follow Christ, but they are wolves in sheep's clothing. This is what it says in Matthew 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. So we've got to be very careful. Even in the church, we are not safe because we see that these wolves will infiltrate into the church, into the Christian faith, and claim that they have knowledge or they have power from God. And many people can get swept away by this due to the lack of understanding the Word of God. And so the Bible tells us, Jesus tells us, beware of false prophets. But wait a minute. If there are false prophets, could it be that there's also true prophets or prophets today that have the gift of prophecy, prophets today who are part of God's true church today? You know, friends, no one counterfeits something that doesn't have an original. Doesn't that make sense? You know, because there's an original, there's a counterfeit. Isn't that right? And so let's take a look at the next question here. We're going to turn to the book of Acts 2. Acts is after the Gospels. Will there be prophets in the last days? What do you guys think? Well, let's take, the Bi let's take a look at the Bible and see what the Bible says. Will there be prophets in the last days, in the days that we are living in? We go to Acts chapter 2, verse 17. And we're going to take a look here at what Peter says. Acts 2, verse 17. 
And we're going to have table number two read this for us. Acts chapter 2, verse 17. Will there be prophets in the last days? In the days that we're living in, should we expect to see prophets coming about in our time and also in the time before Jesus comes? And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall read dreams. Okay, so back to my question. Will there be prophets in the last days? Yes. How do you know? It very much tells you, doesn't it? It says that it shall come to pass in the last days. So when shall it come to pass? In the last days. And it says what will happen? It says that he will pour out his spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. So will we expect to see true prophets in the last days? Yes or no? Yes. Very clearly. Right? The Bible tells us that there are true prophets. I really want to emphasize that. Because sometimes when we hear someone says that they're a prophet, let's be honest, we're very skeptical, aren't we? <laughs> we're very skeptical about their claim to be a prophet. Right? But notice, Jesus didn't say, beware of prophets. He said, beware of the false ones. Didn't he? In other words, if there's false ones, there must be true ones. And very clearly, Acts chapter 2, verse 17 tells us there will be prophets in the last days. And so we need to know how to differentiate the two. Don't you think that would be important to know? How to differentiate between the true and the false prophets. Okay, so let's take a look at question number two. It says, what does the Bible teach about the genuine, not the counterfeit, gift of prophecy? Could it be that the reason the devil counterfeits the prophetic gift is because God has a genuine prophetic gift? And he's trying to lead people astray by the counterfeit. Does the Bible teach that there will be a manifestation of genuine gift of prophecy in the last days of Earth's history? Yes, we saw that in Acts 2.17. Um, but some people claim that the prophetic gift has ceased at the end of Bible times. Should the church today expect to see spiritual gifts in operation in the church? If so, how can we tell the genuine from Satan's counterfeits? Let's go to Ephesians 4, verse 8. Ephesians 4, verse 8. And it's page 1126. 1126. Ephesians 4, 8. Does the Bible teach about the genuine gift of prophecy? Ephesians 4, verse 8, page 1126. And we will have table number 3. Read that for us when we get there. Page 1126, Ephesians 4, 8. Okay, is that the right one? Ephesians 4, verse 8. Ephesians 4, verse 8, 11, 26. I got 4, 2. 4, 8. Oh, here. Uh, Therefore, he, said, he says, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Okay, very good. Thank you. So when Jesus ascended up on high, 
He led captivity captive and gave what? He gave gifts, right? And who did he give these gifts to? To men, right? So if Jesus gives gifts, do you want the gifts he gives? Well, do you? <laughs> Absolutely. This is no good thing does he withhold from them who walk uprightly, right? The Bible tells us. So any gift that Jesus gives us is going to be a good gift. Yes or no? Yes, it's a good gift. So I want those gifts, and you do too. But let's take a look at question number three. What are the gifts of the Spirit? What were these spiritual gifts that Christ himself only could give us? And whatever gift it is, I really want it. And uh, we go ahead and continue in Ephesians chapter 4. Patricia just read verse 8. We're going to read verse 11 and 12 to see what are these gifts. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So it says God, Jesus gave gifts. What kind of gifts does he give to the church? He gives some to be what? Apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers. Right? So these are five specific gifts that the Bible mentions that he places upon the church, that he bestows upon the church. And some, it says, will be teachers. Do we need biblical teachers in the church today? Amen. Yes, we do. Uh, would, and he, it says some will be pastors. Do we need good pastors today that preach God's word faithfully? Amen. Yes. It also says some would be apostles. That is, divine administrators. Do churches today need administration that believe God's word and are praying men of faith? Do we need them? Yes, we need them indeed. What about the gifts of evangelists? Do we need those who could preach God's word and see people come to Christ and understand his word? Absolutely. And so what about this gift of prophecy? Is this a gift that God will also restore to the church in the last days? And how long will these gifts remain in the church? And what are they for? What does it say? It says, verse, uh, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So God would put spiritual gifts in his church, including the gift of prophecy. And he would bless his church with visions and dreams. And this is what scripture tells us. That God is giving this so that we can be edified. The body of Christ can be edified to the work of the ministry till Jesus comes. So this is very important. These gifts are so important for a church to have in order to edify the body of Christ. To build up God's church and the work of the church. Especially in the last days that we're living in. And there's a great work that needs to be done in preparation for Jesus' coming. And God's church is that entity on this earth that is going to fulfill that very mission. And I pray that we will all say, Lord, we want to be part of that mission. We want to be part of that movement that will usher and prepare the world for your soon return. 
And so we see that Jesus gave these gifts to the church to strengthen it, to accomplish its mission of proclaiming the gospel to the world. So the church needs all these gifts to challenge the enemy head on. And so we have a true enemy. The enemy is the devil, the Satan, the adversary, who is going to do everything he can to stop us in our tracks from doing this work. And the church needs all the gifts, and Jesus bestows the gifts to the last-day church in order to do this very important work. Number four, how long will these gifts remain in the church? Will they be taken away after a short period of time? Well, the Bible tells us, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13 and 14. Did you read that, Scott? Or did you read 11 and 12? 12. Okay, so let's have the next table, uh, table number 5. Sal, would you mind reading that for us? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13 and 14. And that's going to answer this question, how long would these gifts remain in the church. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13 and 14 tells us how long will these gifts remain. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Mm. Continue. Okay, very good. So we see that it tells us when, how long do these gifts remain with the church? It says, till we all, what? Come to the unity of the faith. Um, are we unified as God's church in these last days? Are we? No. <laughs> you can even see the number of denominations we have out in the world today, don't we? We are far from becoming one flock, which is, what, which is what Jesus wants, right? Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. There's many people that know Christ, but they don't know the complete truth in Christ. And so thank God for you coming to these series where you're learning more of this truth from the Word of God in its completeness. And the more you study the truth, the more we should become unified under one through these gifts that God gives us. Also, it's till we become a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So in other words, it's not just us coming together through the Word of God, but also through the work of sanctification that the Lord does through, it, through us as individuals and a church body. We must come to that perfect man to become like the fullness and the stature of Christ. To be more Christ-like is the goal for each and every one of us, isn't it? Don't we want to be just like Christ? Isn't that the purpose for why we believe and are followers of Christ? Because we want to be more like Him? And that sanctification process takes place through the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit bestows these gifts upon the last day church so that the church can bring the church and edify them to this standard to become more like Christ. To be more like Him in character. Because the only thing that you could take home to heaven, friends, is not anything on this earth. None of your possessions, not even the clothes on your back, you cannot take it to you in heaven. The only thing you can take home is your character. 
And your character is what needs to be made perfect through the grace of God and made in the fullness of Christ. And so we see that that is possible through Christ and through the Holy Spirit. Amen? The Holy Spirit can make that possible for us. And we see that as Jesus ascended to heaven, he said to his earthly church, I am going to give you gifts. I'm going to place my gifts in the church. And one of those gifts will be the gift of prophecy. And Paul says that out of all the gifts, uh, I think it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I don't, I don't have time to go over that. But he says that out of all the gifts, the greatest gift that we should ask for is the gift of prophecy. He says that is the greatest gift of all the gifts and we should yearn for it, we should ask for it, and we should want it. And we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 7, it, why does he give us these gifts? So that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says that the church is waiting for the coming of Christ and would come behind in no gift. If you and I are looking for truth, if we're looking for God's true people on earth, if we're looking for the body of Christ on earth, we must find a church, first of all, that is eagerly anticipating the coming of Christ. Amen? It must be an Adventist church. In other words, a church that is looking forward, that's longing for Jesus to come, that is resting their hope on that very imminent reality that Jesus is coming soon and we want to be ready, but not only us to be ready, but we want the world to be ready. And that is what an Adventist church stands for, to prepare and long for Jesus' return. How many of you want Jesus to come back very soon and this world as we know it to be over with? I want that so much with all my heart. I can't stand living in this world anymore. And when Jesus comes, the world as we know it will be over. And a new era of peace and prosperity and righteousness will reign forever and ever. And we see that the characteristics of God's end-time church is a church that's anticipating the second coming of Christ. We also see that the end-time church, God's end-time church, the Bible tells us, must be a Bible-based church, a grace-filled church. And it preaches the blood of Christ and salvation as only through grace. And we see that also it must be a Christ-centered church, we also need to find a church that leads us to obey the commandments, which is a Sabbath-keeping church as well. But to that body, to that Bible-believing group of believers, we should expect and anticipate the gift of prophecy to be restored. Because if it doesn't have the gift of prophecy, it would come behind in a gift. And the Bible says that the church that is waiting for the coming of Jesus should come behind in no gift. And so we see that we should anticipate that Jesus is going to give His last day church the greatest gift that Paul says is a gift that we should all ask for, the gift of prophecy. God's last day church will have all these characteristics including guided by the gift of prophecy. Jesus promised the gift of prophecy would be revived in the last days. And maybe that's why. That's the reason today in our world we're seeing an explosion of interest in astrology, 
and the occult. I was just at Barnes Noble the other day meeting someone for a Bible study. We meet there every now and then weekly because uh, it's a convenient place to meet. But as we finished our Bible study, uh, we noticed that there's books on an aisle on the spiritual section. <laughs> but they had books on the occult and witchcraft. And I was like, wow, it's so blatantly out there. And it's like right there on this. It's not, in, like, it's not within the uh, you know, bookshelf. It's like out there on the stand for people to see and just easily, freely peruse that book. And we see that there's an explosion of interest in these things, that, which testifies to the times that we're living in. We're living in a time where these sort of things are becoming more and more accepted. And we see because there are two great dangers, the first danger is to accept the counterfeit. Millions of people wanting a supernatural experience accept a false supernatural experience. The second danger is to be so skeptical of all these false manifestations that we reject the genuine. Is it possible to be so cautious that you become afraid of any church that claims to have the gift of prophecy? In fact, that's a question that we must answer tonight. Question number five. How can we tell the difference between the true and the false? And so we see there's a way to detect the counterfeit gift of prophecy from the true gift of prophecy. Do you know um, before... Uh, like the FBI, they try to find out and detect counterfeit $100 bills or counterfeit money in general. Do you know how they do that? Do you know how they can detect what is false and what is the real? It's not by studying all the false, right? That's going to be time-consuming. It's not going to be time-efficient. <laughs> but what they do to be able to detect counterfeit money is that they have to study the original. They have to study the original so well. They have to know the original so well that when they are given counterfeit money, they can tell instantly. They can in instantly spot it. That is fake. Right? So we must also, in the same way, study the genuine. Study the genuine. What does the Bible say is the genuine gift of prophecy? We need to know that so well so that when something else is deviating from that, we can tell right away the difference. And so the Bible, I'm thankful for the Bible, the Bible gives us six tests of the genuine gift of prophecy. And once you understand these biblical tests, friends, you could spot a genuine counterfeit, I shouldn't say genuine, a counterfeit gift a thousand miles away. So let's take a look at some of these biblical tests. Uh, let's take a look at Numbers chapter 12, verse 6. Numbers 12, verse 6. I have it on the screen, but you can write it down on your notes. It says, If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. So how does God make himself known to a prophet? Dreams and visions. Yes or no? Based on this text, yes. That's the means by which God communicates to the prophet through dreams and visions. So we see that God uses these two methods to communicate with biblical prophets. Either an angel brings them a vision or a dream, like it happened with the prophet Daniel, um, or when the prophet slept, 
or he may have been awake as the vision took place, like when Peter had that vision, right, about that, that sheet that came down with all the unclean animals, right? He was awake when that happened. We see also the second way is that the Holy Spirit impresses the prophet's mind. Uh, so their minds are being impressed and influenced through the Holy Spirit. We see in um, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, it says, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the what? Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what moved these men of God to give prophecy as we have it in the Word of God. So there are two ways that the Bible tells us, through a vision or through a dream. Or sometimes God impresses the mind with the Holy Spirit and the prophets begin to write out that impression. Right? But I want you to understand this. Not all of God's prophets are Bible writers. Okay? For example, there's many examples in the Bible where there, there are prophets, but they never wrote a book in the Bible that we have today. But does that make them less of a prophet? No. They're still a prophet of God, but a prophet of God that are not necessarily Bible writers. Right? For example, Agabus was called a prophet in the book of Acts. But he didn't write a book in the Bible. We don't see the book of Agabus anywhere. Right? We also know John the Baptist was the most famous prophet in the New Testament. Jesus said that he's the greatest of all prophets. But there's no book in the Bible written by John the Baptist, is there? And so we see that the difference between Bible writers and the true prophets are what? What's the difference between Bible writers and true prophets of God? Or I shouldn't say difference, but what is the similarity? Or what is the commonality between the two? Here's the commonality between Bible writers and true prophets. The commonality is they were both inspired by God. They were both inspired by God. And those prophets whose writings are included in the Bible have a message that is eternal in time and universal in scope. The true prophets whose writings are not included in the Bible had a message from God for the church at a particular period in time. So the same spirit is working. The same spirit that, that caused the Bible writers to write what they had to write in Scripture. The same spirit that, that gave the prophet the message to give at that appointed time is the same spirit behind it all. Right? So they are not going to contradict one another. They're going to what? Complement one another. Are you following? Does that make sense? If they are true prophet. Yes? So we see also in the Bible there were women prophets as well. Uh, in the Old Testament, Deborah was a prophetess. Huldah was a prophetess. And also in the New Testament, the seven daughters of Philip were prophetesses as well. I don't know if that's the right way to say it. Prophetesses. A lot of s s sounds. <laughs> okay, question number six. What are the tests of a true prophet? We are, we're covering this now in detail. So it's going to be a list format. So if you're taking notes, this would be very helpful. Uh, the, but the biblical tests of a true prophet are these. Um, six tests that God gives us in his word. Number one, prophetic accuracy. What did I say? Prophetic 
accuracy. So when a prophet makes a prediction, a prediction that is not conditional on the repentance of the people, okay, there's a, that's a different kind of prophecy. There's a conditional prophecy, but, there's a prophecy there's, but if it's a predictive prophecy that is not conditional based on the repentance of the people, the true prophet's prediction should be accurate how many percent of the time? What about 99.9%? No, it has to be 100%, right? So the, the, a true prophet, when he makes a prediction, it will come to pass every time. It'll be a zero fail rate, right? So let's take a look at Jeremiah 28, verse 9, to see this test clearly in the Word of God. Table number 6. Jeremiah 28, verse 9. Jeremiah 28, verse 9. Prophetic accuracy is what the Bible says is the first test of a true prophet. So, Jeremiah 28, verse 9 is page 7. 759. Thank you. 759. Check this out. Jeremiah 28, verse 9. The first test of a prophet is, number one, prophetic accuracy. Okay, do we have that, Nika? Okay, so when a prophet makes a prediction, right, and it comes to pass, what do you know? That truly it is a prophet sent by God. That's what the Bible says, right? So in other words, we see that as a prophet makes that prediction, it should always come to pass. A hundred percent of the time, it should be without fail. That will, that's how we know that the prophet is sent by God. So what is God? So this tells us that when we see that a true prophet, his prediction is accurate every time we know that they are a true prophet of God. And in some cases, like I mentioned before, prophecies are conditional, like the story of Jonah. Remember? Jonah's a good, good example of a prophet who made a conditional prophecy. He told Nineveh that the city will be destroyed in 40 days. And there was no appeal for them to repent. There was no hope in that message. He just said, Nineveh will be overthrown in 40 days. And that was a prophecy. Yes? But what did the Ninevites do? The Ninevites, how did they respond to that message? They repented with sackcloth and ashes. The whole city, not just the, not just the citizens of that city, but the animals too. They even had the animals clothed in sackcloth and, and ashes and, and so that they all truly repented. And so we see that they repented. So what happened? Did the disaster hit? No, the disaster was averted, wasn't it? Due to their response to this prophetic message. But Jonah was still a true prophet, wasn't he? Isn't that only logical? The prophet is accurate, but in the case of conditional prophecies, there's, there's differences there. But a prophet that is not 100% accurate is not from God. So we see false prophets can guess, but only God knows truly what will come to pass, and God will make it uh, known to that true prophet.
So we see God's true prophets are accurate because God does not confuse the message. God is not a God of confusion. Amen? God's true prophets are accurate not 60% of the time, not 30% of the time, not 16% of the time, but all the time. And so we see that that's the first test of a true biblical prophet. If every prediction that they make comes to pass with the exception of conditional prophecies. Okay, the next test is the second test, biblical faithfulness. Biblical faithfulness. A true messenger from God will lead people back to the Bible. Bible prophets don't rise to tell you what movie star is going to be married for the fifth time. Or how to make lots of money with the lotto. Those are not what the gift of prophecy is for. Notice this powerful passage in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 1 through 4. It says, If there rises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign or wonder comes to pass which he spoke to you. Okay, so here it is. Here's this, there's this prophet who makes a prediction... And what happens, according to this text? He makes a prediction, does it come to pass? Yes, it comes to pass, but notice what he says. So, so, so say, so he makes a prediction, it comes to pass, so already you're thinking, okay, he may be a true prophet, but look what it says next. It says, but, which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. Is there something wrong with that picture? If someone makes a prediction, it comes to pass, you think, okay, they passed the first test, but then they say, hey, let us make gods and go after them and serve them, gods that we didn't know. Is that also, does that fit in line with a true prophet? No. Because it goes further on to say, it says, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice and you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. This passage is extremely significant. Some people think that if a prophet makes a prediction and the prediction comes to pass, that sure enough, that prophet is from God, a spokesperson from God. But that alone does not determine whether or not that's a true prophet. Okay? So just because someone says something and it comes to pass, don't get all on board right away to think, oh, that's a true prophet. Because we see that if the so-called prophet is not leading a person to the Word of God, to be faithful to Scripture, they are blatantly false. That is a red flag. You need to beware of them because they're actually contradicting the Word of God and trying to lead you astray even though they may have one out of the two tests of a prophet. And we see that when that happens, that we need to stay away from them. Don't take heed to them. If you play with fire, you're going to be burned, as that saying says. So biblical tests of a prophet, they need to fit all these tests, by the way, all of them. Okay, not just 50% of them. So prophetic accuracy... Biblical faithfulness, and number three, exalts Jesus. The genuine gift of prophecy exalts Jesus Christ. And look at this passage of Scripture. Uh, 1 John 4, 1 and 2. Let's take a look there. 1 John 1, 4 and 2 to see how the Bible tells us this third test. 1 John 
4. And that's page 1170. 1170, 1 John 4, 1 and 2. And we are on table number 7. 1170, 1 John 4, 1 and 2. The third test of a prophet should exalt Christ. Okay, so do we have someone from table 7 that can read it for us? Okay, so pause right there, Curtis. Notice, it says, do not believe what? Every spirit, but do what? Test the spirits, right? So it doesn't say, don't believe all the spirits, and period. <laughs> it says, don't believe every spirit, but test them, right? So we're, we have these tests, so by the time you leave home tonight, you'll have all these lists of tests that you can test someone. If they come up to you and say, hey, I have the gift of prophecy, I'm a prophet of God, you have these tests to test them by. The Bible says we should test them. Not dismiss every spirit, right? But test them because there are many false prophets in the world. God says don't be gullible, don't be deceived. There are many false prophets in the world. We must test them and continue. Curtis? Okay. So the gift of prophecy should lead people to Jesus. You see, the genuine gift of prophecy, according to the Bible, is found in Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. It says, For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. We learned that last night. So a genuine prophet of God testifies of Jesus. John the Baptist testified of Jesus. John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a great test of a prophet right there. Where he wants to lift up Christ and let Christ increase and he decrease. Now, there's a lot of false prophets out there today who has their own ministries where they say, they claim they are prophets, but they want to get money from you and they try to make the, a, a name for themselves and try to elevate their ministry and try to you know, be prominent in the media. And so we see that those people, I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, attack their character, but that seems a little strange when you see that in contrast to what John the Baptist was. John the Baptist said, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. A genuine gift of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. The next test of a true prophet is commandment keeping. And we see that the prophets of the Bible, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, were raised up at times where men and women were breaking God's commandments. And they were called to obedience. They were called to faithfulness. They were called for a return to keep God's commandments. And here it is in Isaiah 8 verse 20. Let's read this next one. Table number 8. I guess, Pat, would you read this for us? Isaiah 8, verse 20. Someone give me a page number when you get there. Isaiah 8, verse 20. It's 660. Is that right? No, 661. Okay, Isaiah 8, verse 20. This is the fourth test of a true prophet. Isaiah 8, verse 20. 
Aha. To the law and to the testimony. If you don't speak according to these two things, it is because there is what? There's no what? Light in them. If that so-called prophet who is not leading you back to the commandments of God, if they're not leading you and calling you to a life of obedience to God's word and God's commandments, that is a false prophet. And so the Bible is very clear on that. To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. So that is the fourth test. They are called, a, a true prophet will call people back to obedience, back to God, to turn back to Him. And that is a very important work for the prophet and that characterizes him as such. Notice the fifth test. The fifth test is that it ha the prophet must uh, demonstrate physical tests of being a prophet. So this involves physical phenomena associated with the gift of prophecy in the Bible. Three physical criteria distinguish this genuine gift that we see in the Bible. We see the physical criteria of prophets. So this could be a sub-list under number five. But number one, the prophets, when they go into vision, when they experience visions, their eyes are opened. Their eyes remain open throughout their vision. This is found in Numbers chapter 24, verse 4. Right, so when they're envisioned, they're like in a trance-like state. Their eyes don't close. They're just transfixed on whatever it is that God is showing them. And they have their eyes open and remain open. That's a physical um, thing that you can notice as they are in this vision. Next is that in vision, prophets have no physical strength. So it says that when Daniel was in, pro in, in, in a vision in Daniel 10 verse 8, he, his, it says, all my strength left me. And Daniel was without strength. He just almost like was powerless in, the, in this moment of being in a vision. And we see also the third manifestation, physical manifestation, is that prophets in vision do not breathe. Daniel 10 verse 17. So when a prophet goes into vision, the physical characteristics of the vision are, number one, their eyes are open. Number two, the prophet does not have physical strength and does not breathe. And why doesn't the prophet breathe? Because all scripture is inspired by God. The word inspired means God breathed. So God is sustaining the life of the biblical prophet as he's in vision because he is actually getting the inspired word of God. He is in that moment of seeing what revelation God has to show him. So those are the three physical criteria of prophets of what they go through when they are in vision or when God is um, revealing something to them. Okay, so number six, the sixth test is spiritual fruit of that prophet. God doesn't take a, a, a lone prophet here and there. God places the gift of prophecy in his church to bear spiritual fruit in the life of the believers and in the life of that church. So the genuine gift of prophecy is given to God's church. And so let's take a look at Matthew 7 verse 20. Matthew 7 verse 20 and we're on table number 9. Matthew 7 verse 20 
Can someone give us a page number for that? 941, thank you. Matthew 7, verse 20. This is the sixth test of a true prophet. Matthew 7, verse 20. Jesus says, how will you know whether they're a true prophet or not? By their fruits, you will know them. So if God had a church on earth today, if God raises up a Christ-centered, cross-preaching, grace-filled, Bible-believing, Sabbath-observing, Seventh-day Adventist people, if God does that, would He restore to that group prophetic visions and dreams? I believe so. And so let's take a look here. The gift of prophecy, first of all, let me just make this clear. The gift of prophecy does not take the place of the Bible, okay? The true gift of prophecy does not replace the Bible. It doesn't usurp the authority of the Bible. The true gift of prophecy actually exalts the Bible. Okay, that's how you can know if it's truly of God or not. Prophetic visions and dreams that are accurate, prophetic visions and dreams that take you back to the Bible, prophetic visions and dreams that exalt Jesus Christ, Prophetic visions and dreams that meet the criteria of the physical tests and have the spiritual fruit. The gift of prophecy does not replace the Bible. It edifies it. It raises it. It exalts it to its proper place. And so make, let's make that very clear. Number seven. What is one clear identifying characteristic of the last day church? Let's look at what God says about his last day church in Revelation to his end time people. Let's take a look at Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. There is two characteristics of the last day church, but there's one in particular that we want to focus on today because that is our topic. Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. What is one clear identifying characteristic of the last day church? And so we are now the table back there. I guess, Mie, if you can read that for us. Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. What is one clear identifying characteristic of the last day church? Revelation 12, verse 17. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to meet her with the rest of her offspring, to keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Okay, thank you. This verse is part of a brief history of the church from before Christ's time to the end of time. And we've studied this earlier. Chapter 12 of Revelation predicts that the church will be persecuted during a 1260-year period and that it would flourish at the end of time. And notice the two characteristics of God's last-day people. Verse 17 tells us that these two characteristics are, number one, they keep the commandments of God, and number two, they have the testimony of Jesus. And so the question is, what is the testimony of Jesus? Does anyone remember? Okay, I know some of you remember, but any of the people that have been in our meetings for the first time during the series, does, do you remember what the testimony of Jesus is? We just we covered it earlier. Okay, if you don't remember, it's really important that we find it from the Bible and let the Bible tell us what is the testimony of Jesus. So let's go to Revelation 19, verse 10. 
Revelation 19, verse 10. Page number, please, if someone gets there. What is it? 1187. 1187. Revelation 19:10. Okay, Revelation, Revelation 19:10, 1187. And let's have we're back to table number 1. And I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, "See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God." For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Okay, so it tells us very clearly. Do we know what the testimony of Jesus is? It says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. God's last day people. God's last divine movement on earth. God's Bible-believing, Christ-centered, Sabbath-keeping people must have the gift of prophecy. The gift of prophecy is placed in the church. In fact, look at what, Corinth, what Corinthians says. In 1 Corinthians chapter one, uh, 12, verse 28, it says here, And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, and second, what? Prophets. Prophets. The true church in the apostolic day had prophets in their church, in their midst. Would there be also a church in the last days that should have prophets as well, or the gift of prophecy. You know, if we believe that we have found God's church, as spoken of in Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, then that church, if it fits the bill, must have the biblical gift of prophecy. If we believe that we have found God's church in these last days, it's truly God's church if it has the gift of prophecy. But if it did not... It could not possibly be the true church because the Bible predicts that the true church will have this gift. The Bible teaches that Jesus himself will bless this last day church with the gift of prophecy. God does have a Christ-centered, Bible-based, Sabbath-keeping Adventist church on earth today. Now here is the question. Has God blessed the Seventh-day Adventist Church with the gift of prophecy? And if he has not, then we need to keep on looking for the Bride of Christ as depicted in Revelation chapter 12. Right? If it's not the Seventh-day Adventist Church, it's got to be someone. But who? But we see that the Bible tells us that the church would come behind in no gift. Faithful to his word, God himself placed the gift of prophecy in his last day, Sabbath-keeping Adventist church. And God took a young woman, weakest of the weak, with only a third-grade education, and blessed her with prophetic visions and dreams. This young woman was very sickly, but her mind and heart were open and receptive to God. And Seventh-day Adventists believe that God gave her the gift, her gift of prophecy. And her name was Ellen Gould White. And 
God gave her more than 2,000 prophetic visions and dreams. And furthermore, on top of that, she wrote over 50 books. And she lectured to thousands on three continents. And the last years of Ellen White's life were spent in California, where George Wharton James was writing the history of California in his book, California the Romantic and Beautiful. So in this historical book, he comments on this simple, humbly, humble, godly, spiritual woman on page 319 of this book. And this is what he says. And this guy is not an Adventist, by my, bear in mind. He's not, an, he's not an Adventist whatsoever. But he thought that was important to mention her in this period of history. It says, this remarkable woman, though almost entirely self-educated, has written and published more books in more languages which circulate to the greater extent than any other woman in history. That's quite a feat. To this date, no other woman has done what she's done. Quite remarkable for a woman who just had a third grade education, wouldn't you say? Quite amazing for a woman who was sick in her early years and almost on her deathbed. There are many people who have questions about the gift of prophecy. Does the prophetic gift replace the Bible? That's a question that many people ask. For example, do Seventh-day Adventists accept the writings of Ellen White on par with the Bible? And friends, I want to make it very clear, coming from a Seventh-day Adventist, okay? You can, get, you can get this all, you'll get all these different sort of uh, renditions from online. And quite honestly, that's insulting <laughs> when I read those things because those people are not, they don't know what they're talking about. If you want to know, take it from the, horse, the mouth of, the, of one who knows as a Seventh-day Adventist. Seventh-day Adventists, just put this down on paper if you need to. Seventh-day Adventists believe in the Bible and the Bible only as the source of every Bible doctrine. We don't base it based on what Ellen White says or what anyone else says. All our doctrines come from the Bible and the Bible alone. Every teaching of the Adventist church comes directly out of the Bible. Everyone. Seventh-day Adventists also, we believe in the entire Bible, not just the New Testament. We believe that the Old Testament and the New Testament, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All of them is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. We do not drop the portion of the Bible that God says He will restore prophetic gifts to the church either. If God says that there will be a prophetic gift in the church in the last days, we take that too and believe that too. Even when that prophetic message might rebuke us for some cherished sin. You know, a lot of people don't like Prophets in the back, in back in Bible days, they don't even like prophets today. You know why? Because prophets are not afraid to rebuke the blatant sins of the people. And people don't like that. Their reaction is very hostile towards that because it's the carnal heart, you see, that is at, at, at enmity with God's law. And so when God's prophets, who that's not a very good job, by the way. You think being a prophet is a very uh, fun job? It wasn't a fun job for these prophets. They got a lot of flack and retaliation and pushback from the people for presenting the message that God told them to present. 
And many times, those prophets are sent to call the people back to God, to turn away from sin, to repent, keep, keep obeying God, turn away from idolatry. And the only thing an honest-hearted man or woman can do before dismissing someone who claims to have the gift of prophecy, you must, it is your responsibility to examine that individual's claims. Don't just dismiss it just because you think it's so weird, but it's your responsibility as a follower of Christ to examine and test and prove those claims by the Bible. Not by your preconceived notions or what you think is appropriate or not, but test it by the Bible and see if those claims are true. Because the Bible tells us that there will be prophets in the last days, and if we disregard the true prophets in the last days... We are rejecting the very counsel of God. Apply, let's apply these prophetic tests to Ellen White. These six tests that you wrote down. Let's see how she measures up. If this person meets the biblical test of a messenger from the Lord, we should accept them as a genuine voice from God. If they do not, we rule them out. So how does Ellen White line up with these six biblical tests? Let's look at them. Number one. The first one was what? Prophetic accuracy. And what areas did Ellen White write in, and were those areas accurate? One of the subjects that she often wrote on was health. And back in the 1800s, when she lived and wrote, people had no idea that sugar and fat contributed to coronary heart disease. And Ellen White wrote about a diet of whole grains, fruits, nuts, and vegetables, the very diet that the American Heart Association now recommends. This diet is also an anti-cancer diet. And scientific researchers have concluded a rich a diet rich in fruits, nuts, grains, and vegetables help prevent cancer. But the amazing thing is that back in the 1800s, Ellen White wrote in the book Ministry of Healing, and if you guys want a copy of that book, it's a very good book. It's, it just blows your mind how she is way ahead of her time in regards to health and healthful living and longevity of life. But in that book, she says... Tobacco is a slow, insidious, but most malignant poison. And she wrote this at a time where doctors were actually recommending cigars to their patients. They also believed in inhaling tobacco smoke would cleanse their lungs. And this was in the 1800s. But Ellen White wrote at that time where it was unpopular, and people thought that was ludicrous for her to say that, but she wrote that tobacco was a malignant poison long before any scientific evidence said otherwise. And today we know that smoking causes cancer and a host of other diseases, but no researcher today would argue with her on this point. And get this, Dr. Clive McKay a former professor of nutrition at Cornell University, he confirmed the accuracy of Ellen White's writings on the field of nutrition. He says, in spite of the fact that the works of Mrs. White were written long before the advent of modern scientific nutrition, he says, no better overall guide is available today. Wow, that comes from a 
professor of nutrition. How could he even endorse her? Because he finds her credible. That's coming from a secular nutritionist at a prestigious university that would credit and endorse what she wrote. That's big. And he goes on further to say, you know what he says? He says, this woman is a hundred years ahead of her time in the area of diet. That's what he says. That's pretty amazing for him to actually say that. And we see Roger Cohen, a Jewish, Jewish physician who's not Adventist, was so impressed with Ellen White's dietary advice that he published a book of her writings. That's how impressed he was. He published a book of her writings entitled, God's Nutritionist, Pearls of Wisdom from Ellen G. White. And in the book's foreword, he says this, she was a nutritionist with facts as up-to-date as those found in this morning's nutrition journals. So friends, we see that the evidence of, weight of evidence in favor of more plant-based foods and fewer animal foods and diet has resulted in many changes in mainstream authorities today, such as nutrition and your health, dietary guidelines for Americans. These guidelines that advocate for a plant-based nutrition that will, uh, that will, uh, that is low in saturated fat and cholesterol and moderate in total fat and to limit our intakes of sugars. All these things she said a long time ago. And science is just now substantiating what Ellen White said more than a century and a half ago, that the healthiest diet is comprised primarily of fruits, nuts, grains, vegetables. What about biblical faithfulness? What did Ellen White herself say? If you want to evaluate somebody and what they wrote, you go to their writings. And you don't go to what somebody said. You don't go to some web page by their critics who have prejudice about them without examining all the evidence. And I would not want someone criticizing me based on someone what someone else said. And she wrote in the book, The Great Controversy, this is what she says, in our time, there is a wide departure from their doctrines and precepts, and there is a need of a great return to the great Protestant principle, the Bible and the Bible only as a rule of faith and duty. Can you agree with that statement? Amen. That we need a return to the Bible? Is she saying anything wrong? No. She's actually exalting the Bible. She's affirming the Bible. She's pointing people back to the Bible. And the true gift of prophecy, friends, leads people back to the Bible. Seventh-day Adventists do not believe Ellen White's writings in any way take the place of the Bible. They do not believe that her writings are another Bible. But they do believe that God graciously gave the church the gift of prophecy through the Holy Spirit in visions and dreams to guide in these last days. Number three, the true gift of prophecy exalts Jesus Christ. What about Ellen White? Did she exalt Jesus Christ? Let's see what she says in the book that she wrote, Gospel Workers, page 160. It's a book about um, Christian workers and what they ought to do as they do the work of Christ. She says here in page 160 of that book, lift up Jesus. 
You teach the people, lift him up in sermon, in song, in prayer. Let all your powers be directed to pointing souls, confused, bewildered, and lost to the Lamb of God. All her writings were doing were pointing people back to Jesus, elevating how special Jesus was, how Jesus is their all in all, and we must turn back to him. Her writings had that sole purpose in mind. To elevate Christ. She never talks about herself. She never tries to uh, promote herself. Never. She's always exalting Christ and telling people to get back to the Bible and the principles of the Bible. She, break, she, she makes it very clear that that needs to be turned back to. Ellen White's writings are filled with an emphasis on Jesus. She points out again and again that we are saved by grace through Christ. She wrote the book, Desire of Ages, on the life of Christ. If you guys don't have that book, let us know. We'll get you that book. Christ's Object Lessons, which is about the parables of Christ, which is very deep object lessons that you can learn from that book. Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing on the teachings of Christ on the Sermon on the Mount. Steps to Christ on how to know Jesus for yourself. All of these books are to help people to strengthen their walk with Christ and to strengthen their Christian experience with Christ. That's what the books were meant to do. Not to be in place of the Bible, but to get people to know Jesus and to turn to Him and to turn to the Bible. And we see that somebody said that the proof is in the pudding. And rather than read the critics, why don't you read the book yourself? Read the book, Desire of Ages. See if there's anything in there that's questionable. You're supposed to test all things, right? See if there's anything that raises a red flag. I, I guarantee you will not find a single thing. You'll find that everything is in line with Scripture. Everything is in line with the richness of who Christ is and elevating Christ and who He is. Ellen White fulfills this biblical test. Her writings exalt Jesus as Lord and Savior, and it leads us to the fourth test of a true prophet, commandment-keeping. At a time of rebellion, the biblical prophets led people back to commandment-keeping. The prophets did not manufacture something that was not in the Bible. They did not contradict the prophets who had gone before them. Ellen White, in the same way, leads us back to obedience to God. She exalts the law of God. She points out the significance of the seventh-day Sabbath. She urges people to study the Bible. And as Jesus did, she says that if we love Him, keep His commandments. The modern gift of prophecy meets the test of accuracy. It meets the test of biblical faithfulness. It exalts Christ. It leads us back to commandment keeping. Now, what about the physical tests? One of the physical tests is that prophets don't breathe in vision. We talked about this earlier. And Daniel, you know, he, when he was in vision, uh, he was going through all this trance-like state he was unconscious about what's going on around him. And um, in the same way, Ellen White, when she was in vision, she was utterly unconscious of everything transpiring around her. Daniel was first weak, but he was strengthened to stand. Ellen White, while she was in vision, she lost her strength temporarily, but later on she stood. And Daniel, said, Daniel uh, when he was in vision, he said that there was no breath left in me. And Ellen White did not breathe while in visions, which lasted up to three hours. Now, there was a doctor that was present during this time, Dr. Drummond. He was a skeptic. 
He says, I cannot accept visions, dreams from any woman. I reject them. That's what he said. I know, he continued, based on Daniel, the 10th chapter, you're not supposed to breathe in vision, that chapter says. So I will examine her while she's in vision to see if she breathes or not. So this doctor actually put her to the test while she was in vision. And you can read the medical account of Dr. Drummond when he examined Ellen White in vision. He said he put a mirror to her nose, to her nostrils, because when you breathe, what happens to that mirror? It fogs up, right? So he did this, and he held the mirror to her nostrils, to her mouth, for this time that she was in vision. She was in vision for hours. And he noticed that, sure enough, she did not breathe. And this was very unusual. It was an unusual phenomenon. And Dr. Drummond himself, upon seeing this, became a believer in God's work through visions and dreams. During her vision, she didn't breathe. Her eyes were open. And so she fulfills those tests of actually being in vision. And they have medical uh, journals that documented this. Uh, what about the spiritual fruitage? Does she have fruit? Why would the church need the gift of prophecy today? You know, Ellen White wrote on various subjects and topics. She wrote on education, on health, on um, you know, uh, retirement, these sort of things. And Ellen White wrote on a book called Education, and in it she said that the Seventh-day Adventist, Bible-believing Christians should establish schools around the world so Adventist young people could be educated to bring the gospel to the world. That's the whole purpose of education, to train them to be missionaries for the final work before Jesus comes. So we see what is the spiritual fruitage? The largest Protestant education system in the world. Over one million students attend its thousands of schools around the world. Over three, 13 million outpatients visit 785 hospitals, clinics, nursing homes, dispensaries, child facilities, airplane and medical launches operated by the church each year. And so this is definitely a fruit of her ministry. And we see that what is the fruitage of the writings of this gift of prophecy? Hospitals around the world. Ellen White's writings do not deal with bizarre events and wild-eyed fanaticism. They have changed the world for the better. And these are visions and dreams to guide God's people so that the church can move forward around the world. Seventh-day Adventists today have a modern mission movement that spans the globe today. And let's take a look at some secular sources here who knew Ellen White and what they had to say about her. Uh, you know Paul Harvey, the radio broadcaster, well-known radio broadcaster for ABC Radio, uh, ABC Radio Networks. This is what he said on September 25, 1997. Paul Harvey, this popular radio personality, announced in his nationally syndicated program in his, where everyone were, millions of Americans were listening, this is what he said. He says, women have been honored on American postage stamps for more than 100 years, starting with one woman who was not an American, Queen Elizabeth, in 1893. Since then, 86 women have been honored, ranging from Martha Washington to Marilyn Monroe. Also, many women authors like Louisa May Alcott, Emily Dickinson, Wyla Cather, and Rachel Carson. But I can name an American woman author 
who has never been honored thus. Though her writings have been translated into 148 languages, more than Marx or Tolstoy, more than Agatha Christie, more than William Shakespeare, only now is the world coming to appreciate her recommended prescription for optimum spiritual and physical health. Who is he talking about? Who is he building up towards? He says, during these few minutes, as he's presenting this to everyone on national syndicated radio, people who have never heard of who Ellen White was, and being introduced as a historic author and speaker, Paul Harvey himself says, Ellen White, he reveals who it is. He says, you don't know her? Get to know her. He's actually on national syndicated radio telling people, you need to know what this woman is all about and what she has done and what she's written about. And he's actually, he's not a Seventh-day Adventist. He read her writings himself and he's saying, the proof is in the pudding. That's what he's saying. He's saying that her writings are something that you need to be familiar with. And when she died, when we're talking about the fruits, like the, the Bible tells us, Jesus tells us, by their fruits you will know them. You'll know whether they're of God or not. In the Star, which is a secular press uh, based on St. Helena, California, in July 23rd, 1915, she passed away. And this is the obituary that they wrote about her. This is not, this is a secular press, get, mind you. And you know, the press is all about exposing the faults of people when they ever, when they, whenever they get a chance, right? The press is ruthless. And this is, when they wrote, their, when they wrote her obituary, what did they have to say about her? By, your, by their fruits you will know them. It says, the life of Mrs. White is an example worthy of emulation by all. She was a humble, devout disciple of Christ and ever went about doing good. She was honored and respected by all who appreciated noble womanhood, consecrated to unselfish labor for the uplifting and betterment of mankind. Her death marks the calling of another noted leader of religious thought and one whose almost 90 years were full to overflowing with good deeds, kind words, and earnest prayers for all mankind. This is coming from a secular press. And what they had to say about her is that her life was consistent to her Christian faith. And they can attest to that. By their fruits, you will know them. Number eight, why do we need prophets today? Isn't the Bible and the Bible only enough? That seems like a good question, doesn't it? Some people say, why do we even need prophets when all we need is the Bible? Well, if we need the Bible and we believe in the Bible, let's see what the Bible has to say. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. I think we should turn to these texts and write them down and take heed to them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. What does the Bible say how we should regard prophets? Can someone give me a page number? 1137. 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 and 21. 1137. I believe we're on table number 2 now. 
1 Thessalonians 5, 20 and 21. I hope all of us are looking at this because this is a very important question that many people use to say, why do we need prophets today when all we need is the Bible? Okay, go ahead. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things and hold fast to that which is good. Okay, so if we are Bible-believing Christians, what does the Bible tell us in regards to prophecies and prophets? It says, do not despise what? Prophecies. Do not despise them. But what are, what are we to do instead? Test all things and determine what's good and hold fast to it. Isn't that what it's saying? And is the Bible giving us a, a recommended counsel here of what we should do when we encounter prophecy? Does he say to throw and disregard prophecy altogether? Is that what this text is saying? Disregard prophecy altogether. It's all bad. Is that what it's saying? No. It says, do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Next text. 2 Chronicles 20, 20. 2 Chronicles 20, 20. And we'll have table number three. Patricia, if you could read this for us. 2 Chronicles 20, 20. And we'll get a page number in a minute here. 425. Thank you. Is the Bible all we need? Why do we need prophets? Take a look here in 2 Chronicles 20, 20. Okay. So they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went out, Jeremiah, or Jehoshaphat, So notice what it says here. It says, believe in the Lord your God and you shall be established. But also, what does it go further on to say? Believe his prophets and you shall prosper. So is the Bible endorsing that we take heed to prophets? Is it? Yes. The Bible is telling us to take heed to true prophets of God. And when we do, we will prosper. You know, Luke chapter 7, verse 28 and 29. I'd like to read this as we close tonight. And we are winding down here. Luke 7, verse 28, verse 20, uh, Luke 7, verse 28 through 30. It says here, when, I'm sorry, wrong one. Okay. 999, Luke 7, verse 28 through 30 says, Jesus says, For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, having not been baptized. So notice in this text, it tells us that the people heard him, and been, they were baptized of John. But when the Pharisees, how did they respond to John's preaching? 
They rejected him. And what does it say here in this text? But the Pharisees rejected the will of God themselves, not having been baptized by him. So friends, when we reject a prophet of God, who are we rejecting? We're rejecting God. We're rejecting the one who sent that prophet. Ladies and gentlemen, when men and women are honest-hearted, God leads them. The Bible says that in these last days, God will have a special people. He promises to give his people a special gift from Jesus called the gift of prophecy. Not to take place of the Bible, never. Not, not to have the authority of the Bible, no. Not to take the place of Jesus Christ, absolutely not. But as a special gift given by God to guide and direct his people to know Jesus better. To understand the word of God better. And tonight, thousands of honest-hearted people are saying, Lord, thank you for leading me to understand and to know God's truth because God still leads today. And let me ask you this question. When David was caught in that sin with Bathsheba, and David, did he know the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not commit murder. Did he know that? then why didn't he go to the Bible and get converted? You see, friends, David knew. But God sent Nathan the prophet. And when he sent Nathan the prophet, he had Nathan the prophet point out that sin, and he said, you are the man. And when David heard that, he realized his sin. He realized his sin is separating him from God. And God sends prophets for that very reason. There are people who may know the Bible. There are people that think that they know the Bible, but they don't see how it pertains to them. When Nathan told that story to David about that sheep, and David didn't realize that that story was talking about him, until the prophet pointed him out. Friends, the gift of prophecy is to help us to sense our need for Christ. Yes, the Bible's there. But sometimes, you know how it is. Sometimes when you study the Bible, you think, or when you hear a preacher preach, you're like, mm-hmm, I know who needs to hear this message. Such and such needs to hear this message. I wish I could get a video or a tape and give it to them. But we never see how it pertains to us, hardly. It always applies to someone else. But maybe God for the sake of saving David. Maybe God, for the sake of saving you in these last days, is saying, you've missed something. And I'm trying to send the gift of prophecy to help you to see what you've missed from my word. And to make you really understand how that word applies to your life personally. That's what the gift of prophecy is there for. Yes, God gives us the word of God and that should be enough, but God goes even further than that because he loves us. He will send out a messenger to save even just one person to turn from his ways, turn back to his commandments, turn back to obedience, to turn back to repentance to him. And that's what God will do in these last days. In the last days, God gives a threefold message, a prophetic message to the world. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Babylon has fallen. 
If any man receive the mark of the beast, the wrath of God will be poured out upon them without mixture. This message, as, as sobering and hard as it is, is a message of love, is a message of getting people to understand that they need Jesus, they need to turn back to Him wholeheartedly. And that's what God intends for the gift of prophecy. That's why it's so important for the gift of prophecy in these last days. Because we're living in a time of history where it's the worst time of history. The most degraded, the most sinful, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be before the Son of Man comes. We're living in a time where nobody will take heed to the Word of God. Everyone's enamored with the things of this world, and they're being swept away by the delusions of Satan. And during that time, do you think that God would do everything in His power to send a message to wake a dying planet? that they would come to their senses and turn back to the living Christ. And I believe that's why God gives a gift of prophecy for that very reason. Friends, you've joined us during this whole series called Jesus on Prophecy. The word, the, the purpose of prophecy is redemptive. It's not just to help us to know all these cool new, new insights and truth that we didn't know before, but the purpose of prophecy is that God wants to reach us and redeem us to help us to see that these things came to be, therefore I must turn to God. I know time is short and I have no time to waste and I need to make that decision for Christ now before time runs out. Prophecy is to make you realize that. And so tonight, how many of you want to say, Lord, I'm so grateful for the gift of prophecy that you have bestowed to your church in these last days so that we can sense our need, our deep, desperate need of Christ. If that's, your, if that's what you agree with, would you raise your hand tonight and say, thank you, Lord, for that gift of prophecy. That's to redeem me before you come. I'd like to make one more appeal before we end tonight. I know we're running a little late than normal, but this is our last meeting. And I'm not sure when I'm going to see any of you again. And I can't end the night without making one more appeal. Is there anyone here you know that your life it's not hidden Christ. You know that you've been living for the world and the things of the world. You know that you're not walking in the way that the Lord wants you to go. You're not going to the truth that He's leading you to, but you say, Lord, I want to follow. I want to follow in your truth. I want to follow you in these days before you come. Would you make that decision tonight? If that's the decision that you're willing to make right now, bravely, courageously, would you stand where you are right now and say, Lord, I'd like to follow you all the way. Wherever your truth will follow, wherever your truth leads, I will follow. If that is your desire, would you stand this evening and seal that commitment? Wherever the truth that God reveals to shine 
in your path you will follow. That is your desire. Stand with me tonight as we pray. Let's close. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we have seen throughout these series of meetings how your love and your faithfulness towards lost humanity just astounds us. How you never give up, but you do everything in heaven's power to reach lost sinners, to come from darkness to light, from error to truth, from death to life. And Lord, we want that newness of life in you. Lord, we stand here before you today affirming that we need you and we want to surrender our hearts and lives to you. Bless us tonight, Lord, as we leave. Help us to continue this journey in following your truth, the truth as it is in Jesus. Forgive us of our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And help us to have a desire out of our love for you to do thy will, no matter what the cost. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.